What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Papira. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different complete guy, which is the guy who walked the walkways of San Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me, it was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... No, no, that's actually funny. That's, and it's funny. I'll tell you why. I'm gonna, that's a good one, man. No, I'll tell you why. Look, the first Welcome to Death Row Diaries, the only podcast hosted live from Death Row. I'm Matt Ralston. And I'm Gleaming Rivera. And Bill, today we're going to talk about Charles Cullen. He was a nurse that killed a bunch of people. Really weird guy. And I also saw a movie, The Good Nurse, starring Jessica Chastain as uh, as the nurse and... Edie Reedmean, I don't know how to say the dude's name, as Charles Cullen. And uh, I give it a thumbs to the side. Anyway, not so important. So we're going to discuss that case. First, we have a few listener-submitted questions for you to tackle, and we do appreciate those questions coming in. We'll get to all of them in the coming weeks. If you have any questions, you can send them to our Facebook page. That is facebook.com slash deathrowdiaries or on Instagram. That is Instagram at deathrowdiaries. You can also check out our Patreon page where you'll get access to all kinds of bonus content and episodes that aren't available other places. And we do appreciate everyone that subscribed. If you want to check out that page, patreon.com slash deathrowdiaries. You know, it's... uh, it's really a few bucks a month and uh, a lot of people are, are pretty into it as are we, Bill, you, you enjoy doing the bonus episodes or the special Patreon episodes, don't you? Yeah. I get a little looser and talk about things that people ask that we normally don't do. So yeah, it's great stuff. And I think it's interesting. And yeah, I like talking about it, obviously. So this question came in from Patreon and that's from Caroline one of our loyal listeners, friend of the show. And she says, Bill, it's been a while. Do you have any news on when you will move from death row? Is death row actually being closed? We did an episode on that and and that whole story. Um, Caroline says, is there anything you're looking forward to about being in the general population are there any privileges you will lose or miss there's a lot there to unpack but can you give us a quick outline of what's going on yeah sure and and thank you Caroline for the question Um, so first things first the the situation here on death row as you know our governor has in fact put a moratorium on death row and the not so much death row, but the death penalty, so no one's being executed. And um, the voters of California voted on Proposition 66, which basically gave the the California Department of Corrections the option to move people on death row to other prisons 
so taxpayers aren't paying the kind of money they pay right now. Of course, it was sold as it was sold as a proposition to speed up the death penalty by sending the cases to the lower courts to be adjudicated, and that turned to be a mess. Um, the people who were trying to keep the death penalty sold that to the public, and it really was completely false. Um, so, in terms of death row, they're going to be moving people off of death row. They've already started a pilot program, but they put about 100 guys off of death row, and they're in general populations in about five different prisons that are level three and higher. There are one, two, three, four, well, and five is maximum security. And death row inmates will be on levels threes and fours. So that's happening. And we understand that in the next maybe six months to a year, the rest of the population on death row will ultimately be moved as well to regular prisons. And this place will be shut down as in terms of being death row. And it will become a wellness center uh, that the governor has spoken about on television. Now, in terms of uh, me, myself, um, I had a court date towards the end of January where I'm supposed to be uh, reset to a lower sentence. And um, I'm looking forward to that part of my life, a new part, a new chapter. But it is a bit scary to say that, you know, the most stressful thing in the world is to move from your home. And although I don't think of this place as home, I've been here for more than 35 years. So it's going to be different uh, living in a cell with another person or living in a dormitory because I'll be at a lower level prison. It's going to be different. It's something I have to get used to. Um, but I mean, if anything I'm going to miss will probably be a single man cell where I'm able to really think and, and, and do the things that I do with death row diaries and, and study and, and do the things that I do best. Cool. Well, we're all, uh, you know, we're all excited to see what happens and we wish you luck. Tom sent us a question, which is a really good question. Uh, and he, he does some work with juries and he's he's kind of an expert on the subject so he was on a jury for a killer he says i'm not a strong death penalty fan but i ended up with a case where i was able to follow the instructions without feeling bad about affirming the decision and he says some of the family members of victims uh you know were crying and thanked the jury and that, you know, if he hadn't done this, that the, these people wouldn't have had any justice if he hadn't affirmed the decision. So he's wondering if you ever, and maybe if convicts in general, I know you think about your jury, but to killers, you know, the, the real bad guys, do they ever sit around thinking about their jurors at all? Well, that's, that's actually a very good question. Um, you know, I've spoken to hundreds of people convicted of murder, and usually their stain is for the law enforcement, the detective that put them there, the prosecution, and the judge. Very few have ever put the blame on the jury, which is kind of interesting because they're the ones making the decision. But 
officers of the courts, including their defense attorneys who they believed did a bad job in representing them. Um, the jury is usually left for thoughts in this realm, which is, I didn't get people of my peers, I didn't get people of color, uh, I don't believe the jury was given the evidence they should have received in order to give me a fair trial. But usually they don't think of the jurors themselves as the reason that they're in prison. Yeah, which is interesting because they they kind of are. I, I guess jurors are more anonymous. They are anonymous. I mean, some you know they can speak out. You could probably find out who they are. I guess maybe, but they're not really the face of the operation. No, they're not. Uh, I mean, at least for me, it's not that way either. You know, I think of the, the case while I was going through trial, and the, the faces that I remember are the judge, the DA, my defense attorneys. Um, but I don't remember individual jurors. I don't think of them individually. And that's most of the time that I've spoken to people, that's their take on it as well, which is a little interesting and, and a bit uh, perplexing, but it's the truth. Denise has a question. And I guess I'm wondering if you follow all this stuff. I, I know you do for the most part, but you, you can't have a vested interest in everyone on death row, I wouldn't think. But she says, Scott Peterson, did he get off death row? Uh, did his conviction get overturned? And has this affected how he might act or do in prison or what kind of time he might serve. Do you know any of this? Well, I, I do, and I, as I've said before, I don't really speak about active cases on death row, but however, Scott Peterson, just to answer your question, and it's a pretty obvious question because I'm sure if, if you look it up or look at the news regarding him, you're, you're going to find these answers. So I'm not disclosing anything that's not a public, uh, I guess, in the public domain. So... Scott Peterson, in fact, is no longer on death row. He received a lesser sentence because he received what's called a penalty phase reversal. And there's a guilt phase and a penalty phase in California. The guilt phase is going to find you either guilty or not guilty of the crime. If you have a special circumstance, which in his case was multiple murder, he is then he, he proceeds to what's called a penalty phase. And in that penalty phase, once you enter that, the jury is giving instructions and then they weigh the mitigating and the aggravating factors in the case. If the aggravating outweigh the mitigating, you are given death. If the mitigating outweigh the aggravating, then you may get life. So that's the part of the trial that he was given. Um, I believe the county he was in just decided not to proceed with another penalty phase. was very costly. And they just gave him life. And this is something that DAs in California now are beginning to understand that, you know, when it comes to political agendas and, you know, re-election, they always want to say they're hard on crime. They use the death penalty as that beacon of light that they are with justice and all this other stuff, which honestly is, is the biggest fraud that there is in, in the state of California. The truth is if someone gets life without possibly a parole, it's a worse sense. You, take, you don't get all the privileges you get on death row. You don't get lawyers. They don't, they're not paid for by the state. 
and you don't get automatic appeals to the California Supreme Court. So if you really look at it for what it is, life without possibly parole is a worth sense regarding appeals and such. Now, in terms of his freedom, he has life without the possibility of parole. He was over the age of 25 when the crime was committed, I believe. So therefore, it means exactly that. Life without the possibility of parole, he will never get out. All right, thank you for that. Thank you for the questions. Again, you can send those to Instagram, Facebook, or Patreon at Death Row Diaries. And I'll read them and I'll pass them along to Bill. So let's get to Charles Cullen, the nurse serial killer. Uh, do you find anything particularly interesting about this guy, this case? Well, interesting, yes, because, because he's kind of a clinical killer. There are no knives involved. There's not a gun involved. There's no strangulation, blunt objects. This guy is clinical. He's a nurse. He, he kills by injection. He kills by giving people overdoses of... He kills in the most, I guess, non-threatening way possible. But in fact, it's, you know, serial killers are usually thought of these horrendous monsters that commit these crimes of violence, of sexual assault, of psychological gratification. There's myths that's mixed in with, you know, sexual sadism. And all these different things that are involved, this guy has none of that. So, on one hand, he's because he's different. And then on the other hand, he's kind of a guy that there's not a whole lot that you can talk about because he, the act itself doesn't seem violent. It seems almost, well, that's why they changed the death penalty and gave people a lethal injection as opposed to hanging or shooting or the guillotine or the gas chamber because it almost seems clinical and non-threatening the way they kill. So you can understand the psychology of why this guy doesn't seem that interesting, but in fact he is. Let me call back. To accept this call, say or dial five now. Hey, man. So would you consider this guy a particularly evolved killer? Um, I know you're always talking about hiding bodies in terms of the evolution of serial killers. If there's no body, then there's there's no way to catch him. Um, so he wasn't doing that per se, but he was in a place where, you know, bodies, you know, in a hospital where people die all the time. So he's kind of doing that, right? Very easy 
that profession because he wanted to kill? Possible. Uh, you asked me once, do I believe that some truck drivers become truck drivers so they can kill? I, I think that that's a great question. Um, I believe that, as I said with truck drivers, they get into that field and then they realize the opportunities that are there and because they are born to kill, they use that particular avenue to accomplish their goals. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but um, that's my feeling about this guy right here. But he is a killer, and he is a monster. He just doesn't seem like the scariest guy in the world because he does it very quietly, um, and he gets away with it for so long. Yeah, and he's a a meek kind of guy you know the alpha male beta male thing is it's not that simple but he's definitely not the alpha male type you know he's a nurse he's he's kind of effeminate i mean when they busted him and they were interrogating him he was sitting on the you know the interrogation chair the hard chair like kind of with his knees tucked up under his chin almost, like how a like a teenage girl might sit. Not that men can't sit that way, <clears throat> whatever. It's just not as common. He just has a bit of an effeminate energy. Yeah, uh, what comes to mind with him is he's meek in some ways, but he does show, he does... Uh, act a little bit different and, and I think he just wasn't comfortable with being a different way and, and I'll explain how that works you know when you exhibit certain traits it, it's obvious what you are or it's obvious that you're aggressive and this guy's not aggressive his, his motive his, um, his reasoning what he gets off on is not sexual the way he kills which I believe is clinical, he kills for complete control. And what better way to control any given situation with the ultimate uh, trump card, which is that you control death. So I think what this guy gets out of this whole thing is control. It's psychological. But I think to understand more about that, we definitely got to take a look at his childhood because there are some things that happen there that can make you at least understand that maybe when he went into that field, he began to psychologically relive what he did as a childhood and it gave him, gave him an out, which was the manner in which he killed. Yeah, you can definitely make the connection. So, go into that a little bit of his background, and and even as a young adult, we should get into some of that stuff too. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. It's you know, I, I sat back and I, I really thought about this guy a lot, and I wanted to really some of his reasoning. And for the first start, and let me just say this: he's a psychopath. He is a psychopath. And I know people think of psychopaths as these crazy guys that are you know, mentally ill and they, they're, 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 they're psychotic and they all these things 
may be true, but they're very subdued with this guy. So he is, he's born in 1960. So he's, he's born in 1960, and by the age of seven months old, his father dies. And his childhood is, look, it's, it's one that's not great, but it's not really horrible. He says he's constantly bullied. The thing that immediately raises my eyebrow is that at the age of nine, he attempts suicide by drinking chemicals from one of his chemistry sets. Now, you know, a suicide attempt by a child is something, it's a horrible thing. And I, I just, I can't even imagine what that would be like. I've never had thoughts of suicide. I've never even contemplated it. But as we know today, counseling can be helped, help this, uh, talking to somebody. There are a lot of things that you can do to talk to these kids in order to get to the root of the matter. I don't know why he attempted this, but throughout his life, he continues this. But he has, aside from that, there's really nothing there. He's not killing animals, he's not lighting fires, he's not doing anything really big. In high school, his mother then is involved in a car crash and she's killed and he seems to ex exhibit a frustration and hatred for the hospital because he was not notified that she died instead they went ahead and cremated her and he had no idea again that is a red flag a kid who's already trying to commit suicide at the age of nine who's had this kind of trauma later on when he's a teenager, 16, 17 years old. And he focuses that possible illness, a little bit of schizophrenia, he's already a psychopath, and that leads to me thinking that already he's developing inside. Already that bomb is ticking inside. So he drops out of high school. Was it because of his mother's death? We're not sure of exactly that's the reason he drops out. But he then joins the Navy, which, hey man, well, you and I have got all these guys. How many serial killers do we know have working on forces? Yeah, quite a few. I don't know if they gravitate toward the Navy specifically, though. That is kind of a, a difference that goes along with his personality, right? Yeah, and look at the look at the, the the sector that he goes into. Goes in the navy, and then he enters the submarine ranks. You know, he he rises to the level of petty officer, second class. He passes all the submarine training, including the psychological tests they give him. So it, he's not a dumb guy by any stretch of the imagination. But you can be intelligent and have serious psychological issues that you can mask very easily for short periods of time. So he becomes part of the crew of the USS Woodrow Wilson. And he becomes part of the crew, this is scary, that operates the Poseidon missiles. So he's in a, a special crew for highly trained individuals in the Navy. So they catch this guy, though, once he makes the rank and once he's there. 
sitting at missile control. Now, this is about as scary as you can get. And I hate to kind of laugh about it, but, but what are you going to do? I look at comedy sometimes with a twisted sense of humor. But they, you have to picture this. They catch this guy at missile freaking control. He has a surgical mask on, dishwasher gloves. He has uh, scrubs on instead of his uniform. And that's how they find him at missile control. So he could very easily have launched missiles and he's dressed like a coke. So, you know, doesn't have to be a rocket scientist to, to figure out something's wrong with this guy. So they immediately grab his ass, they reassign him to a lower pressure job. Now look, the truth is, being in a submarine for two months, underwater, highly pressure situation. It's psychologically draining. It's very, there's a lot of pressure to it. Maybe he twisted because of that reason. But we have to go back to his childhood. He tried committing suicide, and we see something different there. So he's placed in a in a lower job at a supply ship, the USS um, Cannabis, and he attempts suicide again. They throw him in a mental hospital, a psychiatric ward, and at some point he's discharged, he's medically discharged in 1984 for undisclosed reasons. Well, those reasons are pretty obvious, don't you think, Matt? Uh, no, not to me, no. Well, that he was found at missile control wearing scrubs, gloves, a, a surgical mask instead of his uniform? That doesn't have any alarms off on you that he committed suicide twice? Oh, I, th- I mean, I did. I thought maybe they would keep him in longer or something. <laughs> this is the person they're talking about. That's the USS Navy, you know, where he's a highly trained guy that could cause problems to the Navy, so they just let this guy go. Um, you know, after he gets out, but look what he does. It's interesting because when he gets out, he uses the Navy's GI Bill and enrolls in Mountainside Hospital Nursing School in 1986, about a year and a half after he gets out. That school is in New Jersey. Then, during his nursing school, and I don't know how long it is, Matt, what is it, nursing school, a couple of years, two years, three years? I can't think of any more than that, but he's elected the president of the nursing class. So he's an affable guy. He's not that weird that he sticks out completely. Uh, although, I, I will be completely honest here and candid about this. You know, in high school, there was a kid in my class who, well, I mean, let's be honest, he kind of reminds me of a serial killer. He was a weird guy, was to himself, looked like freaking Howdy Doody. He's a creepy dude. And we all voted him the freaking class president. Just out of, I don't know, as a joke. And he, he became class president. He thought he was the king of the world. But this guy gets voted this. I don't know if it was a joke, but he is the nursing class president. And he starts work at a burn unit at uh, a medical center in New Jersey where he meets a woman and he marries her. They have uh, two daughters. Um, but he begins to exhibit really weird tendencies and and here's where again you know i tell you that these guys exhibit things because they're trying to feel out who they are they're experimenting with different things to see what makes them feel good what it takes what it takes to take them to that next level and we see it here because his wife 
shortly after, you know, they have their daughters, she says that he begins to really turn. She files a restraining order because of his cruelty to the dogs. And he begins to spike people's drinks when they go to his house with lighter fluid. So this is him acting weird. Let me call back. I'm now looking at this vision of him sitting in doctor scrubs or nurses scrubs in front of the missile control system. This doesn't take a genius to put these two things together. All right, maybe he's fantasizing about being a doctor and killing people. Maybe he's putting these things together. And as far as the spiking of the drinks, I hadn't heard that story. So that's obviously him kind of figuring out his method and what he can get away with, I guess. Because I'm picturing, like, if I was at a person's house and I suspected they spiked my drink with lighter fluid, I would think, okay, obviously I'm never contacting that person again. That person's really weird, but it seems like a hard thing to prove and to, like, prosecute someone over or anything like that. So, Well, I think his wife is gives us a bit of insight into how he's acting. And we see two different types of uh, cruelty here or attempts to see who he is. First, he abuses the dogs, very cruelly, by the way. And I, I don't think he, he gets a high from that. It's, it's cruelty to an animal, but it, it's beneath him. He's not at the level where he wants to go. He spikes people's drinks. He's playing around. Again, he's, he's fumbling around the dark per se, looking, trying to discover who he is. But the following year, 1988, he commits his first murder. So it's very, it's, a very, it's not very hard to make that jump. Abusing dogs, tries to spike drinks at people's uh, nice house. We know it's because his wife tells us. The following year, at the hospital, he gives a lethal dose with uh, intravenous meds, and he kills several people with overdoses of insulin, including an AIDS patient. He's at the hospital for a few years, and he's begin, they begin to investigate him because of these contaminated IV bags they found. So he doesn't necessarily need to administer the drug there to get to the next level where he needs to be. As long as he can do it from even far away and hear that the person died it really does float his boat. And that's how he begins. He leaves that hospital in 1992 because of the authorities investigating him. But it doesn't take him long to immediately get another job at a hospital. This one's called Warren Hospital. It's in uh, Phillipsburg. Again, New Jersey. And there he murders three elderly women with overdoses of heart medication. That drug medication is... And I hope I don't screw his name up, but the oxen. And look, this guy is like, it's escalating quickly. He's going through a bitter divorce because his wife realizes this guy, there's something wrong with this guy. And what he does is he immediately, after she goes to the divorce, he breaks it. Now listen to this. This was very interesting. He breaks into a co-worker's home where she has a child. And he just stands and watches her sleep. He 
begins to stalk her, and she files a police report that ends up in getting him arrested. He pleads guilty because he's the last avenue of resistance for him. He just pleads guilty because of your probation. He gets out and immediately attempts suicide again. So you see how, although he's killed with medication and overdoses, he's still doing things that come natural to him. The insulin, that kind of, that's not natural. That's not a natural way of killing. It's more of an evolved way of killing. But he has this tick, and that is where you see him breaking into people's homes, watching them sleep, which is creepy as hell, and then stalking the person like any other serial killer would do. I don't know. He's he's kind of doing everything a serial killer would do, but just passively. Like, he's kind of doing it, like, half committed. Yeah, like, he's, he's there's a part of him that is ashamed of what he does, and, and some killers do this. They, they, they don't understand exactly, they don't accept who they are, they don't understand what they're supposed to be doing, they don't know if it's right or wrong, plus all the psychological problems. This guy has psychological problems from birth. The attempts of suicide are a big indicator of this. And, and we see it because after the suicide attempt, that same year he tries to commit suicide two more times. Now look, before everybody starts just saying, oh my God, Bill, how could you say this? So this is a disclaimer for all of you who are very sensitive in this situation, or these situations. It seems to me that the only thing this guy is really not good at is trying to commit suicide. It's not that difficult to kill yourself if you're committed. You know, and uh, no, this guy is not a kid. This is a grown man who already has killed five people. So before you jump on the bandwagon that I am insensitive, think of it that this guy is a killer, he's a murderer, he's killed five people, and now he's committed, trying to commit suicide. I think now we're at the number, number five. And he's unsuccessful. So, I mean, hell. Maybe you should have picked up the freaking book of, uh, you know, a how-to for dummies when it comes to suicide because it probably would have been better for everybody had this guy been successful. But so he very he knows how to kill strangers precisely with drugs that he could just steal because he's already tampering with them and inject himself with a needle he could find easily to state the obvious. So he's not really trying to kill himself or he doesn't want to kill himself in the same way that he's killing the other people, which is very efficient. Precisely. And that's my point in all of this. Thank you, Matt. The, the guy, and I say he's not very good at it because he's not trying to be very good at it. It's not difficult to kill yourself if you're really committed. This guy is doing it for the attention. He likes that people are very interested in the hospital. The nurses are trying to help him out. He's not trying to kill himself. Look, I see it a lot of times in prison. Guys attempt a suicide. It wasn't suicide. It was a cry for someone to talk to him. I can think of other ways to get people's attention because they'll talk to him, but this guy seems to do it by by trying to commit suicide. I know it's twisted, and we're dealing with a person who has serious issues. But look at our response. In 1996, he kills five more patients with a heart medication. And it, it doesn't take him long, he just continues. He, he goes to another hospital, St. Luke's, and in the three years that he worked there, he kills five more patients. 
guy is not the type of guy we should feel sorry for. This guy is killing people because it makes him feel good. It makes him feel like he has power over everyone else because, sadly, this animal doesn't have control over his own life. And he feels that. Not saying that he couldn't have control of his life. He's like, there's obviously, he's intelligent. But he has this storm inside of him that's constantly going on. And he feels... He feels that he is not worthy. He's not. His, his self-esteem is extremely low. The only way it feels better, and how he feels better, is when he kills and he takes someone's life. Of course, if you ask him, "Why did you do these horrible crimes?" He'll tell you he's the angel of mercy. That he did it because these people were suffering and they were going to die and they were terminal, and that is a lie. The majority of people that he killed would have recovered. They had heart conditions. Some of them didn't at all. They were just in the hospital for whatever reason. He killed them because he's a murderer. He's a killer. And there's no excuse for what he did. And worse, he would continue to do it for a long time until they kept. Well, his logic there is idiotic. Anyone can see that because he's injecting saline bags. And he doesn't know who they're going to be provided to. So I could go in for a broken finger and be administered one of those and be killed. So it's just, that's total trash. Anyone can see that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's exactly right. And look, look during this time that he's killing all these people, and I've said this before, he admitted to 40 of them. 29 were confirmed in a 16-year period. I believe the number's way higher than that. I mean, 40 is, is probably what he pulled off in three or four years. His numbers are way higher than that. But look what he does in year 2000. And you're going to love this one. So instead of, as you mentioned, injecting himself with a heart medication that puts him down for good, this clown attempts suicide again in, in 2000. Look what he does. So he decides to go into his bathtub and he puts, and he lights like a charcoal grill inside his bathtub, hoping to die of carbon monoxide. Can you believe that? I mean, picture that for a minute. And he puts a freaking charcoal grill in his bathtub. And he closes the door, hoping that that's going to kill him. That's ridiculous. That's a terrible plan. Obviously, you know, you can extinguish a charcoal grill with water really easily, and it's just needlessly elaborate. It's almost like he's looking for the visual when someone walks in and sees the grill, and they're just like, oh, what is this? You know, this is weird. This is kind of abstract, but it could look scary too you know i mean it would look like a scene you know and maybe that's what he's going for i mean just making a scene with wearing the uh dishwasher gloves and the outfit in the you know at the controls of the of the missiles like <clears throat> it's like occasionally so he's this meek guy that seems to lack confidence but occasionally he tries to make a scene and then he kind of goes back to living behind the scenes what blows my mind is this guy has t tried to kill himself what six seven times and no one in the, in, the, in the medical field has said look this guy you can't put this guy in hospitals he can't work with people and patients this guy's a danger to himself a danger to other people there's actually the possibility 
really this is a danger to other people because if he's trying to kill himself, this is something we have to look at. We don't want people working as, as nurses providing care for other people who are sick or in in, in, in dire straits health-wise. Or he's trying to kill himself. It's not a big hop, skip, and a jump to say, well, this guy could kill other people or he could focus his attention, but no one did. And it's crazy because you know, we tend to feel extremely bad for people who try to kill themselves and the mental health aspects of that, especially in today, in 2022. It's a big thing, you know. And I get it. And even in the movies now, when you watch a television series and someone commits suicide, the screen goes blank and it says, in, in big white letters, suicide is not the, not the way. Call this number just because they show you a scene where someone killed himself. So we're a lot more sensitive to that now as to we were back then. But look, this guy, it doesn't matter. He's trying to kill himself. He does it again. By 2013, I'm sorry, 2003, he kills five more patients. And it raises the eyebrow of another nurse. She begins to see that something's going on with this guy. That everywhere he goes, death follows him. So she contacts the police department and tells them about him. So they're listening to her and they get her to wear a wire and get him to talk about this stuff. And he begins to actually start talking about some of the things that he did and what he feels and the police swoop in on him, and they arrest him. They have enough for probable cop at least to get him in the police station and question him, or at least interrogate him, to see what he's going to say. And what he says just blows their freaking minds because he confesses, man. This freaking guy confesses, I think, is because he liked the attention at that point. The attention from the suicide attempts wasn't enough. This Yeah, so there's a lot building up to this, but they've realized at this point that every hospital he's gone to, there have been these deaths uh, attributed to a foreign medication that the person was not prescribed. And, you know, he's also working with a, a friend of his or a former friend who was a nurse that he, he had befriended and then she kind of realized he was a serial killer and went to the authorities, which is, you know, good for her. And that's why it became a movie, because it's a good story. You know, you, you can uh, detain someone, I guess, and not be 100% certain that they're your guy. But in this case, they knew it, right? Well, yeah, the, the amount of deaths around him were substantial. But when you work as a nurse in a hospital, there's a lot of deaths there. It's not, not strange. What they needed was a connection. They needed, they needed a connection. Him to admit it. It's very difficult to go back in, uh, you know, years and say, well, look, th this is a suspicious case because the person's taking medications in the hospital. They die. It's not the easiest thing in the world to do. But with him actually confessing, uh, when they agreed not to seek the death penalty, if he would just talk. He confessed to 40 murders immediately. Now, why is that significant? This guy is not dumb. He's a very astute, very intelligent person. To become a submarine, a person that goes on a submarine in the Navy, it takes 
becomes a nurse, he's working there. There's no complaints about him not being a good nurse. If anything, he's probably a little too good. But they need him to confess. And, and, and he understands that once he confesses to, say, 40, and the paperwork says we're not seeking a death row no matter what, it makes no difference if it's 40, 60, 100, 2,000. It doesn't matter anymore because they're off the books for him. He's already confessed. He's got like 16 life sentences and the death penalty is off the table. They can't do anything to this guy. 40 is a nice round number. They're able to confirm 29 of those and they leave it at that. You know, it's, it's, it's very difficult to prosecute someone. It takes a lot of money to really start the man hours to start going through records decades back. So they got this guy out the streets, they got a good ground number, and they left it at that. What do you think was the source of the anger that would lead someone to do this? You know, obviously he could have been angry at about his uh, not being informed of his mom's death. I also think this guy might be an incel. You know what an incel is? An involuntarily celibate guy? Well, he wasn't celibate because he had two children and he was married. So, well, he could have been after that. I don't think it's a sexual build of sexual frustration. I think that, I think that the act, the act of killing him gave him control or he felt he didn't have a lot of control. Uh, people that exhibit these um, symptoms, like the control of the missiles with the scrubs on, and that's a symptom of what he already has. The uh, attempted suicide. These are symptoms of what he was born with. And I know some people disagree with me on this, and, and that's their... That's their right. But observing serial killers as long as I have, speaking to them, getting them to open up to me and tell me what was the source of that compulsion. Sure, you could say, well, he was angry because the hospital didn't contact his mother. There's a connection right there, and that's why he killed the hospital. Okay, I'll buy that. But that's the field that he works in. Did he come a nurse? Um, was it a, a, a subminimal message maybe that he, he wanted to work in the field? Of, sure. Okay, I'll even give you that. But again, it just puts him in the field. The actual symptom of what he has is the killing part. doesn't matter he does it in a battlefield, he does it in a freaking supermarket, he does it, you know, over a span of five years by breaking people's houses and raping, maybe killing the fact remains is that he killed. The killing is the part that, the symptom that for what he has. Then when you have a cold, you have a runny nose, it doesn't matter if you're in Utah or where it's happening, it's that you have a runny nose. Same thing with this guy. And same thing with all serial killers. They're killing through whatever means they have, but they express it. That thing is death. And for him, that gratification, 
implication was that he had no control over his life. That's why he tried committing suicide. He tried to gain control. That's what the suicide attempts were about. It was him trying to gain control. The death part of that is part of the symptom. So how does he control it more? He kills other people, and yet he's still trying to commit suicide or gain attention. It's just him tasting a bit of that control. You know how sometimes people, when they get stressed out, we just eat serial killers, they get very stressed out. Hold on. We've heard a number of times that serial killers have triggers. They get in a fight with their mother, they get in a fight with their lover, then they go out and kill. These triggers are, are just manifested differently in this guy. They can change what he's doing. So does a trigger make a serial killer kill? No. The trigger just opens the door. Who he is is who he is. So we see him try these attempted suicides when he gets arrested. Well, that's him trying. That's him trying to gain a bit of control, to taste that control. What does he do not too long after that? kills five more people. Ultimate control. You see how that works? Uh, it's like getting an appetizer. You're hungry. You know, dinner is at 6 o'clock. So at 4.30, you have yourself a little d'oeuvre or something. It just satisfies that meal a little bit. With him, it was suicide attempts. Yeah. And that, I mean, that is what bulimia is about, <clears throat> is control. You know, and that's, it's the same mechanism as cutting bleeding i think it's just um it's something that people can moderate that now they feel like they have you know power over themselves um so how do you think he's yeah this guy's twisted i'm sorry i was gonna say this guy's twisted so of course it doesn't seem very logical but it is logical to them it's almost illogical but it works for them how do you think he feels emotionally physiologically what's going on with him when he hears uh, this patient in this room died and he knows that that's due to him oh it's, it's like orgasm he's completely on cloud nine he, he he's, he's it's like winning the lottery it's like winning a race if you're a, a, a runner or winning a game if you're a baseball player or if you're a gambler you win I remember when we covered Harold Shipman, who's yeah. So that was a couple yeah. months ago. That's on. You can find that in our list of episodes. But uh, you know, that was a, a guy that did a similar thing. So how are these two guys similar, and how are they different? Well, the symptom is the same. They both kill the Shipman. If you remember, he was his mother. Uh, was terminally ill and he saw her wither away and then he becomes of course a doctor always a very intelligent guy he chose that field and he began to again administer lethal doses of different medications to kill patients and he did it 
wow, he killed a lot of people. What got him caught was, of course, that he mixed his motives. One of these last patients who was actually caught for it and then everything else unraveled was that he put himself as the benefactor of her will, which gave him about 385,000 pounds, which was a lot of money back then. Well, it's still a lot of money. Hell, it's, it's like half a million dollars. And that's what got him caught. But we have uh, a person, Shipman never tried suicide. So we have very similar um, animals here. They both like to kill clinically. They both like to kill through medication or overdoses. Um, so they're not that different. The difference is that Colin's a little bit more twisted in terms of his the severity of his illness, which is the, how he was born. He was born with this mental, this predator instinct, this, this way that he is. It was a little bit more severe than that of Shipman. And I mean that, that he was less normal, meaning Colin was less normal. You could see the exhibits of the scrubs, the, the, the attempted suicides, the stalking, watching people while you sleep. That is a little bit more severe than what Shipman's was. Shipman was a very calculated killer. Nonetheless, a killer. All right, well, we'll leave it there for now, and uh, we'll be back next week with another episode. We're going to talk about the killings in Moscow, Idaho, that I think it's fair to say have gripped the nation. And you were actually on Ken Maines. Ken Maines is a detective who has a youtube show which is really good and you recently spoke about it on that show and i watched it and i enjoyed what you had to say and i want to kind of further elaborate on a few things a few things that you theorized yeah no thank you very much the show is called redemption from death, death row and i am uh, working with ken Baines, uh, on a, the idaho murders of course and of course other cases so that's something we should look forward to. It's a good show. Ken Mays is an expert in the cold cases, former detective, former FBI investigator, and I enjoy my time talking. Check it out and uh, definitely uh, let us know what you think. Yes, until then, I've been Matt Ralston. And I'm William Nogueira. Be safe. Be aware of your surroundings. Your life could depend on it. We'll see you next time.